You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony. We are all made of stardust of elements created in explosions in the depths of space. In the most elemental way, we are all connected. Deep questions go to the root of that connection. The Cold War spawned more scientific inquiry than anyone on Earth could have dreamed of at the time. Carl Jung was right. What is possible, what becomes reality, emerges from the rational assumptions of the age. As new documents become declassified and sources talk about their roles in secret ESP and PK programs, past and present, clarity will improve. With advances in new technologies, scientists will begin to see under the surface, learn to ask new questions, and move from hypothesis to general theory. There is no question that man is extraordinary, each of us a phenomenon. Annie Jacobson is the author of Area 51, an uncensored history of America's top secret military base, Operation Paperclip, the secret intelligence program that brought Nazi scientists to America, and The Pentagon's Brain, an uncensored history of DARPA, America's top secret military research agency. Her new book is Phenomena, the secret history of the U.S. government's investigations into extrasensory perception and psychokinesis. Thank you for joining me, Annie. Thank you for having me. This book embodies an incredible conflict at the core of the belief of almost everybody in here and the book itself. It's the battle between science and the supernatural. Can science understand what we once regarded as supernatural enough to turn that stuff into a tool that we can use to beat other people with? There you have it. I think that sums up the real drama in this book and, Mm -hmm. of course, the drama between all the different players because the scientific skeptics, on one hand, loathe the other side, and the supernaturalists can't wait to prove the scientific skeptics wrong. I, I think that what is gets me with this book is you must have met some amazing people. Talk about the moment that uh, launched you into writing this book. So I always get the idea for my book, or at least so far, from the research I'm doing on a previous book. And there I was looking at the Apollo Image Library, and I came across a photograph of an astronaut standing on the moon, reading a document. And it blew me away because I thought to myself, my God, in this one image you have the most advanced science you can possibly comprehend, space travel, and this early, early proto-tool of civilization, which is writing, reading, reading, writing, reading what is written. And I had to know more about that photograph. So I tracked down who it was. It was Edgar Mitchell. The mission was Apollo 14. And I went to Florida and I interviewed Mitchell and I said, what 
were you, I almost said, what on earth were you reading? But that would have been a misnomer. <laughs> what were you reading on the moon? What were you reading on the moon? And he told me that he was reading a map. And the reason he was reading a map was because he and Alan Shepard had gotten lost. And then I found that absolutely mind-boggling, that they had, the astronauts had traveled 240,000 miles, a quarter of a million miles to the moon, landed the Antares spacecraft within 87 feet of the target, only to get lost locally. And I realized that is really what this quest narrative is all about. You know, when you're on a mission, what do you do when you get lost? And are you lost? And that brings us to science versus the supernatural. Absolutely. How fascinating. This uh, got its start, at least in your book, in, in the uh, end of World War II, where paper, Operation Paperclip began, uh, Operation Alsos, looking for all that great German technology. There was some kind, one kind of technology they were also looking for that wasn't actually a technology at all. I mean, look, being a national security reporter, it never ceases to amaze me that everything goes back to the Nazis. <laughs> um, and I mean, think about it. Year one for the CIA mm -hmm. um, is 1947. And that's right out of World War II. And you're absolutely right that these programs, this, the U.S. government and the intelligence community's interest in the supernatural, in the occult, in things like extrasensory perception, psychokinesis, map dowsing. They were all born of this retrieval of a cache of Nazi documents called Das Ananerbe. Those were the that was the name of Heinrich Himmler's pseudoscience organization. And we, the American intelligence unit Alsace, got half of the cache of Das Ananerbe documents. And guess who got the others? Well, we know it was the Soviets. <laughs> and that set everything up perfectly for the psychic arms race. That psychic arms race, what, that's a scary thought. And what proves to be the case is that really did happen. Take us back to this book is a really complicated story. And I want to let readers discover the pleasure of how you put this all together because this must have taken what how many spreadsheets to figure out all these people and, and timelines I could your walls must just be filled with little pieces of yarn Yar yes timelines and note cards and who's connected to who and it's a big puzzle it's like you go down one rabbit hole and you kind of come up another tunnel um, <laughs> but they all interconnect and that's what's so fascinating and you know you spoke of these different f interesting I mean, endlessly interesting individuals that I was able to interview for this book. And in a strange way, they all connect and they research. Someone is, you know, a major player in 1972. And lo and behold, he reemerges in 2016. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. Um, uh, one of the most interesting people that you managed to unearth for this book was a man named Andrijna Puharich. Close. That's great, great try. Andrea Puharik, to those who knew him. Andrea Puharik. Tell us who he was and where he came from and how he got his uh, feet into the psychic warfare program. 
He is a real legend in this world, and so many conspiracy theories have been woven around him and about him. Wow, I uh, imagine. I hadn't even... I mean, I was able to, well, look, he had a fascinating life, and, and it did not end well for him. So he's mm. one of those characters that is a cautionary tale. Mm. But his beginning was brilliant, and his beginning was, you know, that immediate aftermath of World War II. He was Dr. Henry Carell, um, Andrea Puharich. And he was, you know, the brightest of the bright. And he had this theory called the Puharic theory, and he wanted to pursue this quest and find out whether or not extrasensory perception was physiological in nature. If it was biological, he believed it was. And he set up this foundation called the Round Table Foundation financed by the most elite, culturally elite, and financially elite individuals in the United States. I mean, the DuPonts, the Forbes, Alice Astor, these were all people who adored the young Dr. Puharich, financed him, and investigated this idea with him, the Puharic theory, where does ESP come from? I think this, uh, the Wealthy investors is kind of a theme. They kind of come back. And, and what is it about that? That's so interesting. You know, it's sort of like the early version of the Illuminati. And in a way, mm -hmm. I was asked the other day, you know, did, okay, I think if you really look at the documents, and the documents I'm referring to I found in the Library of Congress that I don't believe have ever been viewed before. At least that's what it looked like when you go through these frail paper, paper, with old paper, rusty paper clips attached to them. And when you pull the paper clip off, you realize, my God, this is the original place where the paper clip went. And these documents of Marcella DuPont were letters between her and Puharic about the work they were doing. Um, he called her mother of magic. And, you know, she called him darling. Um, and, you know, they, this idea that these, in, that these ladies with extraordinary amounts of money, I mean, Alice Astor's father went down on the Titanic and left her his fortune. Um, they had money to spend and time to enjoy. And they pursued these ideas of science, whether or not, you know, eureka moments were kind of divinely inspired. Um, and they pursued ideas of the supernatural, which included things like palm reading and astrology and map dousing. And they did these experiments and they caught the attention, Puhara caught the attention of the CIA because the CIA wanted to know what he knew. I, I think that this tension between supernatural and science uh, evinces itself early because there are certain practices which are deemed okay and certain which are not. And when you were reeling off that list, I'm thinking astrology, no. Uh, remote viewing, yes. And, and so it's interesting how the, these, the, how arbitrary everything is until that theory bubbles up underneath it. And also, as I was reading this book, all I could think about was how sure we were probably about 150 years ago, that everything was down to ether and phlogiston and how absolutely scientific spiritualism seemed. It seemed to make perfect sense. I mean, it's sort of like history repeats itself. <laughs> or, or as I read recently, history retweets itself. Um, but, you know, 
these ideas have been around for millennium, but here they were at this critical point in U.S. national security in the 1950s, and the CIA was the first intelligence organization that wanted to know more. And what they did with Puharek was he became interested in hallucinogenic mushrooms. And when I first read about that, I thought, what? How does this fit into the picture? And the way it fit into the picture was an Aztec legend. The idea that the ancient shaman who had this so-called gift of prophecy, of being able to see the future, could would take this Mexican mushroom called Teonacnal, and they would... God's flesh. God's flesh. I mean, you can't make this stuff up. And these are in CIA <laughs> documents, by the way. And they would take, the shaman would allegedly take this magic mushroom and be able to see the future, and also, very important to the CIA, tell you who stole your donkey. So you, it had, suddenly the CIA, you can almost, when you're reading these documents, you can see like the flashlight bulb going off. Aha, intelligence collection. And that is what they wanted. And Puharek was willing to experiment with these drugs and see whether or not you could, if you gave them to psychic people, their powers, their divinatory powers would be enhanced. And so the CIA teamed up with the Army Chemical Center with Dr. Puharek on the job. And Dr. Puharek found himself a good psychic, uh, Mr. Stump. Is it Harry Stump? Yes, and what an, I mean, an, an artist who had been, you know, nearly beaten to death by the Nazis in a concentration camp and developed this power. I could not help but think of Magneto as I, there as are, I read that. <laughs> there are lots of parallels with the phenomena and Marvel Comics. <laughs> and it makes you, and there are also parallels with my previous book, oh, The Pentagon's as, Brain, about uh, DARPA. So you really have to, stop often and ask yourself the question that the scientists are asking, Jung asks, you know, what is fact and what is fantasy? That's also at the heart of this story because it's very difficult to discern. And because the phenomena do not pass scientific muster, I mean, let's just state the spade being a spade right up front. Right. This is why the scientific skeptics, rightfully so, reject the idea from a scientific perspective. Because since the scientific revolution, everyone agrees on the five, you know, the five steps of the method. And that particularly if you can't repeat your experiment consistently, you must start again and create a new hypothesis. And you can't have a general theory until the experiment is repeatable. Right. And the bottom line with the phenomena, whether it's extrasensory perception, psychokinesis, or map dousing, is that it is not consistently repeatable. Now, the scientists that are pro the phenomena will tell you, aha, that is its very nature. Skeptics will say, aha, that makes it nonsense. It, that's <laughs> absolutely so you have uh, a failure to communicate that can only be solved by additional data. And one of the things that's fascinating about the times we're living in right now, and this maybe I'm skipping ahead a bit, but I do think that uh, the, our current fascination with neuroscience and all um, aspects of brain and how the brain works underlying that is a curiosity is if we know get enough neuroscience, maybe we'll figure out what psychic phenomena are.
Well, absolutely. And, you know, that was one of the real aha moments for me, reporting phenomena, which was starting out under the idea that most of these psychic programs were buttoned up in the mid 90s. Mm-hmm. And lo and behold, I learned they have recently reemerged for reasons that you are referencing neurobiology, information technology, computer engineering. These subjects, these fields are all now leading in Defense Department research and budgets. And you see again things like anomalous cognition emerging in the Defense Department. And if you look behind the veil, you realize that anomalous cognition is just a different 21st century word for ESP. The, the scientists go on record talking about anomalous cognition being spidey sense. <laughs> I love that. You know, and, and the other thing I couldn't help but think about was, as I read this book, was how, the appro- how we experienced radiation. And I'm just thinking about a book that T.C. Boyle wrote, where he talked about the radiation treatments that people, the road to Wellville, people used to get in, you know, radium baths. Oh, good. <laughs> the, what's interesting, though, you said that the science is not there, yet the experiences are. And that's some of the most stunning revelations that you uh, offer us in this book. This, these programs went on for a long time, and they did because they got results. And science be damned, results are results. Absolutely, and that's what the CIA concluded way back in 1975, mm-hmm. and really set the experiments on a different trajectory because they said there is incontrovertible evidence that the phenomena of extrasensory perception is real. And when the CIA makes a statement like that, in writing, now declassified, it's worth considering. Oh, absolutely. This book, one of the great pleasures of this book is reading, experiencing all these fabulous characters. And a lot of people you don't expect to find in the same room at the same time. There's just some stunning scenes in there. But one of my favorite guys is a guy that we don't know much about. And his name is Pat Price. And... I still can't get out of my mind the scene where they first meet him in the book. So why don't you just kind of set that up for us, and then we can talk a little bit about this amazing man. So one of the things that's often asked is, how, do the, how does the CIA find their psychics? You know, And usually I say there's a vetting process, or someone has the reputation of being a, a super psychic, like Ingo Swan, who I write about in the book, or Uri Geller. But with Pat Price, it was very spooky, because you have Hal Putoff, who is the lead physicist on the CIA program. We're in 1972 now. And he's with Ingo Swan, the super psychic from New York, conducting experiments for the CIA under the guise of university research. Because you were in Northern California, in Stanford, right? At Stanford, at the Stanford Research Institute. And they pop off to the suburbs to get a Christmas tree for the laboratory. And when they're in the parking lot, this man approaches them and he says, I'm Pat Price. If you ever have any problems, I can help. I mean, I'm paraphrasing, but that's in essence what he said to them. And, 
you know, it was the way Putoff described it to me, it was so spooky and sort of odd that he took note. And later, Price reemerges and offers up his services again and delivers probably what are the most historic, extraordinary psychic situations that the CIA ever dealt with. Particularly because, because so in the, in the process of extrasensory perception, when you're talking about what the CIA called remote viewing, it's about psychics seeing information elsewhere, in a place where they are not. That's why it's called remote viewing. And usually they describe things in a very, you know, artistic manner, colors and places and spaces and descriptions. Pat Price was able to name names read numbers and pull, you know, code names off of files in locations that were classified that were 5,000 miles away from where he was. And he let his experiences, what he reported, led to security investigations by the Defense Department because they could not figure out how this individual had gone around security and gotten access to this classified information. And there was no answer other than he was psychic. This is a theme that this happens more than once in this book, and that's one of the things that's so fascinating. Um, you do a great job of this book at presenting people on both sides of the spectrum. We have Ingo Swan, who knows himself to be a psychic. He's a good psychic. And Ray Price, who just wants to make a pot of money and retire. Um, and then we have these scientists, uh, Puharik, uh, we, you give us James Randi, <laughs> notorious James Randi. Did you talk to Randi? I did. did. I interviewed um, the amazing Randi. The amazing Randi. I don't want to give away that last, you know, the details of that last interview with him because I thought they were pretty spectacular in terms of drama. Mm -hmm. Like, I mean... Randy, in particular, has been locked in a lifelong battle against Uri Geller. And I think I can squarely and fairly say against Uri Geller, because Geller left the battle arena, you know, 25 years ago. And Randy continues to loathe all things Geller. And it's just fascinating that um, that, that kind of anger you know, comes out of someone who's very successful. And I mean, Randy's, you know, a, a sort of Houdini impersonator and Geller Ben Spoons. And yet they have this, um, you know, there's an animosity underneath all of it that's just remarkable. And it really, it's again, epic. it's epic. What a great word. And I, it's, I've always thought there was a movie to be made. And, you know, I want Bill Murray to play Geller and I want... Uh, Dreyf, Richard Dreyfus to play Randy, and I, I think, you know, there's many millions of dollars to be made with that movie. It's, it's like two individuals who will not move off of their position. Now, now, Yuri Geller is a fascinating character in your book, and, and I, I came, if I came to this book with one preconception, it was about Yuri Geller, and it was that he was a fake through and through, Randy had proved it many times over. I left this book with pretty much the, <laughs> I will say it's a spoiler, I guess, but with the opposite impression. It's an amazing uh, characterization. And some of the things that Randy did were, or um, Geller did, were quite spooky. And there's a, 
a, a terror aspect in this book. <laughs> there is, and, and I reference the Thomas theorem, you know, mm -hmm. because there's so many different underlying sort of philosophical ideas behind all that we're talking about mm -hmm. that people use in defense or rejection of, you know, the phenomena. Wow. I mean, the, the self-fulfilling prophecy idea, going all the way back to Oedipus Rex and Sophocles, okay? Yeah. Uh, the idea of the placebo effect, mm -hmm. interestingly, a CIA term. Um, the idea that you could take a harmless pill and believe that it affects you. And that's actually come back. I, I, I'm predicting the placebo is going to be the miracle cure of the 21st century. Mind over matter. <laughs> exactly. Then you have one of my favorites, the Tinkerbell effect. Very mm -hmm. modern idea that something is real simply because you say it's real. <laughs> and then we have the Thomas theorem. And that says, if men define situations as real, they are real in their consequences. And that blew me away because I think it really applies to national security. If the CIA thinks something is real or the Defense Department thinks something is real, there are real consequences. And that was the case with Geller because Geller, I don't want to spoil the book, but Geller has an impact on people psychologically that is profound. And the impact that he had on a group of nuclear weapons scientists in the 1970s was absolutely remarkable. I write about it in Phenomena. And lo and behold, the story doesn't end. It has reemerged in the modern era in 2017. It's so fascinating that um, the way our understanding of ourselves and science has changed the way we see these things and changed even our understanding of, of science and the scientific method. And this is a place where the scientific method really gets a, a workout. And you have some really great kind of players. I love these kind of... Uh, Remote Viewer 001 was one of my favorite guys, Joe Monigle. Joe McMonigle, McMonigle. Yes. He was great. So talk about these kind of... Uh, for all the theorists and the scientists and the, and the white hair guys, there were some like kind of grunts down there on the lines doing psychic warfare. What a fascinating idea. McMonagall was called Remote Viewer 001. I mean, it makes him sound like James Bond, 007, <laughs> right? 001. And the way Hal Putoff described their kind of recruitment of McMonagall to me was fascinating. His reputation preceded him, meaning he had been in Vietnam and he had this purported sixth sense, what uh, the Office of Naval Research today calls spidey sense. And the way that it worked for McMonagall is they would be out in the jungle and he would, I'm kind of paraphrasing, say to his guys, we cannot move forward, it's danger ahead, it's an ambush, there's Viet Cong. And they would retreat and sure enough, the Viet Cong would go by. And this didn't just happen once, twice. This became a repeated situation to the point where, to the degree that guys only wanted to patrol with Joe McMonagall. <laughs> and who could blame them? And who could blame them? I mean, life and death, you're going to go with the sixth sense if it's keeping you alive. And so this reputation of McMonagall's made its way back through to the CIA scientists, and he was recruited into the program when the Army began its program. And he, that is how he became Remote Viewer 001. And then later, he went back to the CIA, and most of what he did 
you know, in the decades that follows, remains classified. That's, I think one of the most telling aspects of this book is how much of this stuff that happened so long ago is still classified. A lot of Geller stuff is classified. Ray Price did a bunch of work, apparently, for the CIA is classified. Joe McMonagall. If they don't want to let you see it, that's... <laughs> you know, these programs were called Special Access Programs, SAP, and they functioned under restrictions that were so profoundly classified. There's kind of compartments within them that are classified. Yeah, yeah there was one, there was one that was three sets. It was like jet stream, blue sky, and something. There, was that one, there were secrets within secrets within secrets. Talk about the rabbit hole. I mean, that's that nomenclature that sort of says it itself. It's like a puzzle. And what was interesting to me about that which are sort of jumping forward to um, the war on drugs. What oh, I learned, wow. what I learned reporting this book, and I did not know before, is that when Reagan declared war, the war on drugs, suddenly it became a you know a federal issue, meaning there was so much money infused into the war on drugs, and they were spending money left and right to try to locate big loads of cocaine that were coming into the United States from South America. I mean, they had every three-liter agency you can think of on the job. And we're not having much success. Who do they call? The psychics. And the psychics began to do map dousing. So they would literally, like, have, have a map, and the, the psychics would, you know, swing the pendulum over the map and say, that's where the big load of cocaine is. And satellite imagery would locate the nearest giant vessel... And then the psychic would be asked to hone in on the cargo holds of that vessel using this ancient supernatural divinatory process <laughs> of map dousing. And ultimately would point at the ship, it would get so specific, they'd point at the ship and say, that's where the big load of cocaine is, in that Conex box. And lo and behold, there were some miraculous, literally, hits, you know. And I say miraculous because the believers said, look, this works. And the skeptics said, you know, that was a lucky guess. Yeah, prove, make it happen again, and we'll believe you. Or tell us what the mechanism is, and we'll believe you. Otherwise, and, and this dismissive attitude between the two factions... I mean, this is a, something we're experiencing more and more just in general society, just a, a, a divide between reason and, and unreason. And I think that on the side of the psychic warriors, after one of those big hits, they had a special name for that, the eight martini moment. I mean, that is a terrific term because it kind of sums up. It was a CIA term, and mm -hmm. it was used to describe how the CIA analyst would feel after conducting a session with one of the psychics and witness them seeing you know, some kind of intelligence collection that they couldn't possibly have known any other way than through extrasensory perception. And it was so astonishing to the analyst, the analyst would have to have eight martinis to kind of recover from this emotional overload. You know, that access to forbidden knowledge was what really drove the fear factor in, in two directions. On one hand, we had the uh, when these psychics were doing their test runs, they would look at 
see our top secret facilities and our people would say, oh my God, this is horrible. How, how could this happen? But then they're also thinking, well, the Russians are working on the same lines and they're going to be looking at us too. So we've got, you know, uh, to quote uh, my favorite line from Dr. Strangelove, we must not allow a mine shaft gap. Well said. <laughs> and that's exactly what happened when the Russians set out some film featuring their top psychic, a woman by the name of Nina Kulingina. And she had actually been a tank operator in the Battle of Leningrad when she was something like 15 years old. And here she was now, this leading psychic, and she could do psychokinesis. She could allegedly affect matter with her mind, which is what Geller allegedly does with bending the spoons with a touch of his finger. But Nina Kulingina was filmed doing these experiments in a laboratory whereby she would stop the beating heart of a frog. And this set off an uproar inside of CIA because, and, and their documents that demonstrate this, they said, my God, someone with a talent like Nina Kulingina could stand next to one of our officials or generals or the president and stop his heart. Or, as Yuri Geller was prone to, change what people were thinking. And this is the, one of the things that happens here is that once the intelligent people go down this rabbit hole of what's possible, the whole world becomes just this minefield of terror and opportunities and you have to do everything you can to keep up with something that you don't even think might not even be true. And that's the Thomas theorem. You know, when men believe something is real, it becomes real in its consequences. And what you're referring to, I think, is when um, Geller was sent to a meeting between the ambassadors of the United States and Russia who were working on one of the most important nuclear non-proliferation treaties of the modern era that, you know, President Reagan and Gorbachev had been working on unsuccessfully for many, many, many months. And finally, the ambassadors were going to meet and kind of hash out this agreement. And Geller was sent to stand next to the Russian ambassador and beam messages into his mind that said, sign, 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 meaning sign the treaty. And this is a story Geller told me in 2016 when I was interviewing him and is backed up by documents. And, you know, Vronstov signed. And Geller humbly says, I don't know if I had anything to do with the signing, but I'd like to think I did. I think that that uh, sums up the feeling of many of these psychics, with the exception uh, of the woman who worked for the CIA towards the end of the book. Andrea is her name? Angela Della Fiora. She is an amazing character, really fascinating. The Third Eye episode, tell us all about the Third Eye episode. I was extremely privileged to interview Angela at length. Wow, that's and she, Yeah, she'd never really told her story before. and. Um, you know, she was, there's great drama in Angela's story because oh, she was, drama. you know, really dragged through the mud, let's say, at the Defense Department. She worked for the DIA, the Defense Intelligence Agency. And interestingly, uh, she was an analyst kind of writing, you know, reports on Cuba and other places, other hotspots. 
And she got wind of this psychic program that was going on at Fort Meade. And, you know, she got wind of it because she was psychic. And she, <laughs> at this time, there was an interesting kind of unfortunate turn of events with the program that the Defense Department had taken over the program and had decided that they were going to train soldiers to be psychic. Yeah, that proved to not be a good idea. And it flew in the face of what the CIA recommended because mm -hmm. the CIA's position after all their years of research was that this is an individualistic talent. In other words, like the way it's, they actually called it super normal, okay? Mm -hmm. Supernatural. Supernatural meaning supernormal. The way I can't sing in the shower and Mozart is capable of making great, you know, the music he made. Sure, I was thinking of just the, the analogy between the athletes. I mean, you know, some, there are people who can run in ways that 50 years ago you would say, this guy's going to be able to run like that. 50 years ago, it's impossible. Exactly. It's physically impossible. It's scientifically impossible. Exactly. And yet you see that huge difference between individuals, between humans, with the same, you know, physiology, mm -hmm. but different. So, but the, but the, um, the Defense Department decided, nope, nope, this is not psychic. It is not some kind of grand talent. People can be trained to be psychic because it's a science. And you know, this flew in the face of, of really the reality of the situation. So what happens is Angela Della Fioro goes to the general in charge of the program, breaks protocol, goes around, you know, the military chain of command, because she's a civilian, and says, I am psychic. She gives the general a psychic reading that blows him out of the water, um, and she gets put on the program. And she's immediately marginalized by the men in the unit and women because you're not supposed to be psychic to be in the psychic program because it's not called the psychic program it's called the remote viewing program so it was this incredible catch-22 and there was a lot of drama that, that that came out of it because Angela time after time started delivering the most extraordinary results and the scientists who were running the program really started to use her more so than the others well sure where are we today with this? Because we have a whole new sets of technology that were completely 100% science fiction, maybe even as first recently as 15 years ago. Um, so tell us uh, about artificial telepathy. I love that idea. Synthetic telepathy. I mean, you know, go back for a second to what you said, which I think is really important, where you were saying, explaining how what is possible today was simply not possible 50 years ago when, when I begin the narrative of the book. I mean, sure. just you could not imagine such things. And that is a concept that I thread throughout the book in the, the, of discussions that went on between Carl Jung, the psychiatrist. Oh, Jung is a fascinating character in his book and an important figure. And Pauli, Wolfgang Pauli, who was a Nobel laureate and a theoretical physicist who is known for the Pauli effect. He was a guy who would walk into a room, the Princeton Institute for Advanced Study, and the cyclotron would catch on fire, or the lights would go out, or a vase would fall off of a shelf inexplicably. And Pauli began to think and write about extrasensory perception, psychokinesis, and the idea of can man affect matter by his very presence, because that was what would happen with Pauli. And so the two of them had this debate for, you know, decades. And what Jung said really was astonishing to me and, and just sort of 
made sense in a way that I had been searching for. He said, what is possible in response to people saying, this is not possible, the mm. phenomena, this is not possible. He said, what is possible must be defined by the rational assumptions of the age, the criteria of the age in which you live. And so you, to your question of what's happening now, what's happening now is defined by this world we live in where advanced technology, computer technology, artificial intelligence, biotechnology, nanotechnology, nanobiotechnology. I mean, this is an entirely different world. And when you throw the idea of anomalous mental cognition into the mix, you get some very innovative ideas. You know, I, I want to talk about something that's I, kind of slightly outside the scope of this book, but I think is deeply involved in it, which is that... Um, there are the people who um, are psychics. I mean, it's kind of a hit and miss thing. Either maybe you're lucky, maybe you're not. But it seems to me that where all of this lives is somewhere at the juncture of statistics, because uh, all these, um, you know, the discoveries we make are statistical. This person had a hit rate of success that was way beyond what the statistics say. On the other side of that you have this kind of cultural phenomenon, which I would call luck, where luck flows to some people. Somebody, you know, Bono's a billionaire rock star, and the guy from the Cramps is, is, playing, <laughs> is playing clubs. You know, who wins and loses isn't always based on the merit of, of the work, or the, you know, this isn't to say that these people aren't talented, but there's a large component of luck in our lives that is not acknowledged and is difficult to define. And I'm thinking that this element of luck is, might be somehow with, between the physiology over here, the statistics over here, and this idea of luck, which we don't really understand. The statistics and luck are somehow connected, I think, in some way, but. I think that is fascinating and it definitely speaks, it sort of, undergirds all of this because luck is you know undefinable exactly Ex and yet it has real results i agree with you that there seems to be you know there is an element in in your in your analogy that you must attribute to luck because how else do you explain that and it's also interesting how some people will say well i'm very lucky uh -huh. And again, we go back to the Thomas theorem. You know, mm -hmm. the luck are the lucky people successful because they say they're lucky. <laughs> is that the self-fulfilling prophecy? Is that the placebo effect, or is it something else? And I think that um, this book too, lit as a page-turning psychic spy thriller. I mean, you could sell this as a novel. It's not because it's carefully underpaid, but the, the plotting and the re revelation, the speed with which you take us through this reading, it's an incredibly well-written book. And did you have to like rejigger parts of the plot? Did you think of this in terms of the plot like a novel? It's a great question. And it's always, each book is a different experience. I think when you get to your end, mm -hmm. yes, certain elements are rewritten because 
the end reveals more than you could possibly have imagined in the beginning. Wow. Absolutely. Um, I mean, I don't want to give away the situation with Geller, but I did go to Israel to interview Geller on a kind of personal quest of mine because I wanted to answer the question about how extrasensory perception and psychokinesis may or may not have a role in present-day espionage. Not intelligence collection, but espionage. And because I was intrigued by the fact that Geller was most definitely a CIA asset in the 1970s, I interviewed his handlers, I interviewed the neurobiologists who looked at his physiology, who were fascinated by his physiology. And the reason Geller left the program was because there was concern among the agency, among the CIA, that he worked for Mossad. So I went to Israel to try to answer that question. And what I found out was astonishing, and I had to do a little bit of rejiggering. <laughs> wow. I've been speaking with Annie Jacobson. Her new book is Phenomena, and she is a phenomena in and unto herself. Thank you for joining me, Annie. Always a pleasure. Thanks for having me. You're listening to the Agony Column News Report featuring interviews, phone interviews, reports from live book events and festivals, and conversations with readers. You can find additional news, interviews, book reviews, and more five days a week at the Agony Column website at trashotroncom agony.